This is a Dalarna University production. Um, hello, Dalarna. Um, I had to say that not because I'm a cheesy uh, performer, but that we went to the peace and love offices on our way here. So I had a brief taste of the the rock and roll business, uh, the festival business, and uh, so I promised them that I would say that. Um, but in a curious way, I'm going to maybe touch on uh, some of the questions that perhaps the the festival business and the university business are not so part, far apart after all. Um, it's all about connecting people in different ways and uh, the reasons why one doesn't connect with communities that one would like to connect with, whether the forms of the communication, whether the, the modes of interaction and encounter are appropriate uh, to the kind of tasks that one has. But um, So uh, I was feel rather kind of charged up um, to have had that brief meeting with those guys. Um, what I'm going to do, because every time, and I'm very thrilled and happy to have been asked to kind of kick off your discussion, because I, I come from a world of um, basically journalism and newspapers where they're having a gigantically intense discussion about what they do next. My chosen subject, I, by some accidents of my life, is environment and design and architecture. Uh, which I write about and tell stories about, and in those worlds too, people are very obsessively trying to understand you know, where they should be going next, what questions they should be asking, how they should be asking the questions. So I guess a starting point is to say, you are not alone in confronting these very, very kind of profound <laughs> questions. I mean, in some respects, they're of course not terribly new. So um, if you ask a question like, you know, what is, what is the meaning of life, or what does it mean to lead a good life, or how do I judge uh, what progress is, and how we can tell whether we're kind of making uh, steps from one place to another, you could go back 2,000 years and find very similar discussions. So some of the kind of questions are eternal, other questions are specific and shaped by the very, very curious and sometimes very challenging things that are happening in our world now. But one of the exciting things about these discussions is that we don't just stare out of the news into the world and sort of try and make judgments about the last thing we saw on the internet or on the television. It's a combination of saying what's happening in our place and our time now on the one hand and by the way what did they what questions did they ask a long time ago uh, when they had similar notions of trying to understand what the future might hold. Which is by way of explaining the three things in my talk for the next 40 minutes or so, uh, because I think the thing that most often gets missed out is some kind of stepping back saying, well, what are the kind of broad drivers and uh, changes in the world that uh, have in one way or another stimulated us to have this conversation about what we do next. Uh, because it's very easy to, uh, particularly in something like education, but in my world of design and architecture, any world where people are very, very passionately thinking about the future, one could very happily occupy 24 hours a day just talking to each other. And I think that's the thing that people like me as the kind of strange uh, people who hop between communities, our job is to say, by the way, some of these issues are common across all the subjects, but also do not forget to say what is the bigger picture that has actually stimulated us to action, which is in my language, or it's not my borrowed it, as I'll explain the metabolic rift um, as a kind of an explanation of the sustainability and progress crisis that we're in. Then, uh, as build, um, a general uh, explanation of 
how it is that people and living systems or people and nature have become separated during the modern age and what are the kind of possible ways in which we can reconnect people and living systems, which in my, I'll explain very briefly because it's a big subject, I think is what lies behind the challenges that we face. And then I'll, I'll end with half a dozen, I hope, stimulating and not offensive questions about what the role of the university might be given these kind of background issues. And then when I've gone, you can happily forget all of that and start talking about pay scales and uh, who gets the best office. Um, but anyway, I will at least start off from that sort of standing back position. <coughs> so, I've been for more than 30 years... Uh, traveling the world and talking to people and trying to understand uh, a big question in lots of different variations, namely, um, why is it that we've uh, created a, an economy and a kind of culture that regards it as normal to grow to infinity in a planet which is finite? And um, people have got lots and lots of different explanations to do with how we've managed to get ourselves to this kind of, into this pickle. Um, but in recent times, there's been a re-examination of this notion of a metabolic rift, which actually, curiously, came from Karl Marx originally as an idea, when he was explaining that when industrialism started and you first saw people working in cities and factories, and like you have here with your mine, a long time ago now, once you started to have workers who was cut to tend the machine, um, they needed to be not distracted by growing food, but fed and kept kind of active and strong. And as the, the cities grew, um, they needed more food than could have been grown in a natural way on the land when people were farmers and living a very simple lives. And so from right at the beginning, and that kind of mine out there would have been one of the first times that they started, we took nutrients out of the soil faster than the soil could be replenished. And so Marx talked about the cities uh, growing and um, becoming physically larger on the basis of the depletion of the soil. Uh, and he only then went on to write a few thousand more pages about how the kind of workers could then recapture control of the situation and fight for their rights. But missing really in the kind of history of that story is the fact that uh, the connection between industrialization and the depletion of nature, the soil is the kind of substrate of it all. Very fascinating, because sort of, the metabolic rift began also within Marxism, because having said, by the way, we're depleting nature in order to grow our cities and our industries, he didn't really go back to it, and the whole movement of what used to be called the left has kind of got diverted into purely production and economic-centered discussions. And I didn't really have a kind of clear... Um, the pictures have gone, or not? Okay. Okay. To me, I'm a writer. I report things. I talk to people who tell me things. And lots of people were telling me that you can't understand a lot of the uh, kind of ideas of nature and the things that we have lost just by describing it to other people. And so two years ago, I was in Nova Scotia, and some people took me to this old-growth forest, um, which is managed uh, by, in a sort of technique called restoration forestry. And over a kind of rather large uh, amount of time of a day, it was explained to me how it is that a forest which uh, grows naturally rather than being managed in a kind of industrial or um, extractive way is basically feeding itself on its dead. 
So without the dead trees that make an old forest look untidy to our modern minds and saying, why doesn't somebody clean up all this mess? The dead trees and the kind of different generations of plants and their different life cycles in decomposing over tens, maybe even longer periods of time are replenishing the earth upon which the trees are growing. And so you would think, okay, well, that means we have to stop everything and never take a tree again. No. Restoration forestry means you understand rather slowly over generations of human beings the cycles of growth and decay in the forest. And then once you understand it and have a proper empathy with its cycles of growth, at that point you can then take trees out, which are either the weakest of the group or damaged or sick or not having a bright future, and those become the basis of a sustainable timber economy. It's pretty much the opposite of industrial forestry and the kind of all the other production-oriented forms of growing things that we have today. But it's a good example to me of two things. One is the quality of that environment is quite extraordinary, and there's no point in me even really trying to talk about it. But the fact that it's possible to have economic vitality between humans and natural systems, even in an old-growth forest, was when the first time after, you know, the best part of 30 years of talking about it, that I finally got it when people talked about the possibility of human beings living in partnership with natural processes rather than just extracting them for our own uses. And what was important about that experience for me in that forest was that it began to explain the other question that I had called, how could we do this to ourselves? That little building at the front there is in, uh, in the Hong Kong is when I was a young lad uh, traveling the world trying to find out where the action was. It was a little sort of a hotel that was sort of a colonial leftover structure. 20 years odd later, 25 years later, all those buildings behind it have taken the place of what was a kind of wetland and a rather swampy and uh, interesting but uh, not economically not viable area. One of the dozens or even hundreds of places in, in Asia where people have grown cities almost overnight. And I kind of asked a friend of mine who had been there, nearly as old as me, about what had, what, by, under what circumstances could you build these terrible um, structures into what had been a biodiversity rich area. Uh, is there some kind of, is the, is the construction industry completely out of control and run by mafia? Um, and my friend said, no, on the contrary. And he took me to meet one of the uh, owners of the construction industry who was involved in this project, who told me the story about how upset he was as one of the principal beneficiaries of this boom about the fact that this system seemed to have got out of control, that he could not, so to speak, turn off the switch. On the contrary, he was complaining to me that because of the boom in the economy, they were building a coal-fired power station 30 kilometers north and upwind of his very beautiful house, that he, as one of the kind of kingmakers of the whole situation, was powerless to stop. The necessity for coal-fired energy to run the machine was greater than one of these bad guys who you would think uh, would make damn sure there was no power station there. And I, that's another reminder that it's not about bad people. There, of course, there are bad people out there. It's a system and a culture and a kind of way of failing to connect which allows these things to happen in lots of different ways. <coughs> then I come to uh, the reason, one of the reasons for my visit here this week was to go and talk to the world experts on the consequences of this out-of-control development, namely the climate scientists. So in Sweden, as you presumably know, you have the, some of the world's leading experts on the subject of the 
nature of the world's life systems. And this is this terrifying kind of picture of the, uh, the so-called planetary boundaries, which in my world of journalism and environment, we talk about, call it the dark star. Because, you know, for the first time after probably 40 years of people saying, this is going badly, they actually made a picture of how it is going badly and, and precisely what kind of degree of badness is happening. So, for example, you know, the degrees of ocean acidification are now kind of, you can put them on this chart. And the purpose of this chart is to give to people called policymakers or leaders of the global economy a clear picture of limits beyond which if we go definitely, we know as sort of scientific fact there will be problems ahead. That is to say these Earth systems are necessary for all life, but including our life. But as was the case 45 years ago when the first books were published by the Club of Rome saying there are limits to growth, this kind of information, scientific, the finest science in the world, you know, heavily kind of um, reviewed and kind of very responsibly presented, it actually is almost powerless to change events by itself. So this is one of my first sort of questions to you guys. Um, doing research to discover what is happening can only ever be one part of a, a process called how change happens. Presenting us, the world, with unpalatable or difficult information, we know, as a matter of fact, is not going to change things by itself. And so the discussions I had yesterday going to meet them was, how do they think about the relationship between scientific research policy and change in the world? How do they imagine there could be some kind of connection between what they do as researchers, what policymakers do? This is what I'm going to come to at the end. What I realized, um, and I've realized for quite a long time now, is that giving people data or charts is not terribly powerful, even in terms of raising awareness. You need to find comparisons and stories which are recognizable to people. And this is a lovely one that I've basically about a few months ago. The man on the right is a parkour, kind of one of these adventurers who climbs and jumps from one building to another at night, illegally. Uh, he became terribly famous and was very pleased with himself for climbing up the Shard, which is the largest, uh, tallest building in Europe, or was it three months ago, in the middle of the night, and had this picture taken with his camera or his phone of him with London glittering away in the background. And this uh, triggered me to revisit the work of a man called Earl Cook, who is a somewhat obscure ecological anthropologist from the 1970s, but the guy who first said, can, I, can we measure how much resources are required to keep people alive at different times of human development? Anyway, to cut a long story short, the guy on the left is a hunter-gatherer from maybe 10,000 years ago, who on average, in a daily life, food, shelter, maybe a bonfire, maybe some shelter, uh, would require 5,000 kilocalories of energy to do, uh, to keep the body and soul together. Whereas the guy on the right, who's sort of physiologically pretty much the same, we haven't changed so much over those 10,000 years as physical machines, um, he needs, with himself and his share of London, his share of the global infrastructure, the airlines, the internet, whatever, uh, 300,000 kilocalories, which is 60 times more resources per person than the backward, savage time of guy on the left. So that is, so to speak, one measure 
two real recognizable people of how far we have separated ourselves from <coughs> any connection with the realities of being supported by the planet and the sort of life systems that it uh, contains. And, you know, this guy on the right is completely not concerned about that. He has no knowledge or care. Why would he know or think about such a thing when he's living in a big modern city with the internet, with beautiful shiny cars, with lit rooms and heating? There's no physical triggers for him to have any reason to think about it at all, let alone to worry about whether all the people in the world living like him can actually go on uh, indefinitely, which is why... Um, when people, as they do frequently, bring out these charts, um, we look at them and say, that's terrible, and there's a pervasive anxiety around the whole world about how terrible things are, and we're all going to end badly. But the third thing I've discovered in the last two years, which has actually cheered me up, is that um, this picture is capable of being good news, because although the red arrow describes things really getting out of control in terms of our impact on the planet, if you think of it in terms of time, the actual problem came when human beings in one way or another, including the guy with his mind out there, uh, first invented the notion of a thermo-industrial economy in which you extract resources from the earth to make products, firstly. Secondly, you create a money system which enables you to capitalize on that activity and rapidly increase it. If you stop for a moment and say, now, if you lived on a finite planet with lots of kind of natural systems on it, what would be the worst thing you could possibly do to wreck it? And if you said, oh, why don't we, let's introduce an economy which is based on physical extraction and will grow to infinity on this little planet, that would probably be the catastrophe that you could imagine, which is another way of saying that the catastrophe is behind us when we invented the system of the capitalist system or the kind of system of the economic and cultural expectations, and we are now living through the, the, the after-effects of the catastrophe, which I find sometimes a bit cheering. And there are other people who are kind of more serious than me and more insightful by a long way who say, we are now getting to the point where we can begin to imagine what would our cultural values be, what would it feel like if we finally kind of escaped from the kind of dream and the, the nightmare of industrial economy and industrial civilization. And Thomas Berry is one of the great writers who's described a kind of a state of mind and a cultural kind of feeling that would be replacing this kind of consumer madness and denial and general frenzy that we live in at the moment. And he describes it as the ecozoic, as the, the reintegration of human endeavors into a larger ecological consciousness. And he was very confident that this is, so to speak, an imminent cultural point of view, a worldview which is not like lifetimes away, but in all of us. We haven't lost totally the connection with the natural and living systems. It's kind of latent. It's been buried under kind of media, education, and all sorts of aspects <laughs> of civilization, but it hasn't gone completely. So there are kind of a few ways in which you could be rediscovered. And what <coughs> Thomas Berry is describing is some of the values that are emerging all over the world in 101 different small experimental ways as people begin to realize that it's not enough, and this is another point for the university world, to go to humanism. <coughs> we find that humanism means making priorities about our actions in economy and in industry and in research in which human beings are at the center of our activities, which is for most of the modern age has been regarded as the progressive bit of the picture. 
But humanism is only halfway to where we are going because the true destination, the true transformation of our values and our imaginations and our, the way that we think about the world is when we think of all life as equally valuable and which we are part of it and rather standing above it and in which the idea of an economy in which the planet is seen as a kind of storehouse of resources that we just take out and make into things will become literally horrific and unimaginable which is kind of where we're now in this transition now and we look at exactly the same thing namely the earth and the land as on the contrary a living system of which we are part whose health is our health and that just totally turns upside down the priorities that we will have in making our economies, making our lives and so on. And it's happening now. So that's why I remain, despite the kind of external signs of just gruesome activities around the world, I also, in my work, and I'm sure you must know people as well, more and more and more people don't just sort of say back to the land as a metaphor or back to getting back to the soil as a kind of figure of speech, but of physically doing it. So this is a woman in uh, California who's part of a growing number of educators who say, I, will, I am absolutely unable to teach children about ecology or the living creatures in the soil. I refuse to do this in classrooms or with slides or movies or YouTube or anything else. They must come and put their hands physically in the soil because when you do that, you understand a thousand times more quickly and with more quality than if she as a teacher tells people about it. So the getting the hands dirty is what used to be some kind of uh, indirect way of describing practical connection with the land. It's no longer a metaphor, it's a real thing. And that picture which I love because that's where I think basically all learning and education should take place in fields and not in classrooms does sound a tiny bit Marist, I know. but. Um, I haven't, I'm not yet in a position to send all the professors to work in the fields, but I can't help wondering what kind of debates they had in China when they did send the professors to work in the field because, you know, there were some unfortunate <laughs> deficits of democracy, but, you know, I do sort of understand what Mao might have been thinking about at the time. However, so that's the kind of the world background of a shift in values which I don't expect you to say, well, that doesn't sound familiar to my life, but I'm just suggesting as a kind of example of the change that could be about to happen or waiting to happen. What I think is more encouraging still than that is that in terms of human beings escaping from this kind of uh, imprisonment of thinking only about technology, only about the economy, only about cities, only about artificial environments, is that there are lots and lots of examples of a very practical and familiar way in which people are reconnecting with living systems just in order to meet the necessities of daily life. And I want to suggest to you, as the second part of my talk, that these activities are the kind of embryos or the, the green shoots of a, of a world in which we reconnect the, the metabolic lift, lift not by being terribly intelligent or advanced or spiritual, but perhaps because we like beer or bread. And so what I will show you a couple of stories from a universe of what they call, they have this lovely word in Brazil, micro-revolutions. Anywhere in the world where people are poor, where there are poor people, people have to be very creative in order to get food for their children, to move around, whatever. So the notion of social change and social creativity is already out there. 
And so there is what the language of the scientists here in Sweden at the United Nations and so on of social ecological systems, I want to translate in my capacity as a storyteller into social creativity that is happening all over the world at the moment, raising the question, what contribution can the university make to this kind of development? A few words, but I'm going to show you examples. So in the kind of weird sort of science language of social ecological systems, or social activity meets living systems, there's things like food economies, green infrastructure, fiber sheds, and so on. I'm going to show you those examples, but if you, if you come from the word of policy or strategy or business or institutional management, these are the words that are being exchanged a lot. But I want to say that one of the tasks, and particularly of designers, is to take these rather abstract words and turn them into things and experience that the rest of us can relate to. So food revolutions are one part of this kind of reconnection. And for the most part, it is not about environmentalists or green activists or anybody else going to a lecture and saying, now I'm going to reconnect with nature, that's what I'm going to do today. No, it's people responding to necessity to say, we are in a mere serious problem in terms of our daily life. How can we uh, get food and uh, earn a living and have a life well-being in different ways? So, for example, Will Allen, who's another one of these remarkable uh, heroic but unsung figures, a former basketball player, a big, tall guy, went back to his home city of Minneapolis to find terrible unemployment of the industries disappearing, a bit uh, like the, you know, the steel industry, the extractive industries, unemployment, young black youth for the most part heading directly to prison, and poor people having no access whatsoever to good food. And Will had in his career met by a series of accidents people in the kind of urban gardening, social gardening movement said, okay, I'm going to start seeing what I can do here in Minneapolis with right in the center of this rust belt city started a project called Growing Power, which is about composting, uh, creating compost from the organic waste of these people living in the city, in a city thing, growing food, teaching people how to do all the different steps of that activity. At no point did he until probably 10 years down the line here even hear the word environmentalism or green. Similarly, over in Los Angeles, there are examples in all over the world, people started to say, well, it's all focused, supposing the Will Allens of this world get young people to start growing food, how do we actually re-educate ourselves about how to prepare, store, and eat it in a collaborative way when we've all been distracted by you know, fast foods, food in front of the television, food in front of the computer. And so this is where there are now literally hundreds of community kitchens being created by citizens for, with, from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds where they, it's a very simple model, they share knowledge about how to prepare exotic foods that they may not have seen before, things that have come out of the growing power type of environment. But it's another bit of the system in which they're not system designers, they're people making food with their children and their friends. Or think about rivers. This is a particularly uh, impressive group from Pittsburgh, uh, which uh, has a nine-mile stretch of the river in another steel city, which has been devastated by the disappearance of traditional employment. They are not just going to some pleasant bit of countryside and having picnics beside a beautiful river. They're saying, we want to re 
store and regenerate the, city in the river in our city. And so these groups of volunteers with their own hands have been going to sewers, drains, very damaged hydroelectric plants, all these kind of really grungy, dirty bits of any modern city that we hardly even see, let alone go and pay attention to, cleaning them up, opening them to the air, connecting them to each other. In other words, a bit like a surgeon in a hospital would you know, replace the sort of blood system in a damaged arm and put the veins back together again. They are putting water systems and watersheds back together again, not by having uh, campaigns to tell the mayor to do it, by doing it with their own hands, with their own kind of sweat labor. And so what is beginning to connect this strange world of the kind of climate scientists who say we need to um, think about social and ecological processes as one picture. The researchers are beginning to go to all those sorts of projects and say, okay, look, what can we understand in the real world of the way when, when kind of economic activities and uh, green activities start to overlap with each other? So there's a slow coming, coming together of different disciplines and mindsets. And this is one of the sort of Stockholm crowds maps of a place where people are looking after the land in a new and collaborative way. And the map helps them to say, how can we connect these different groups together in fresh manner? And I don't know whether that is a bit washed out, but if anybody here is in regional planning or architecture or kind of thinking spatially and geographically, all these little experiments, because they've been growing up over a 10, 15-year period, there's now enough of them happening that people say, okay, how do we coordinate these dozens or hundreds of grassroots activities, how do we help them to do what they do better? So this is in Germany, in North Rhine-Westphalia, a project called Aqualon, where for the first time certainly in Europe, um, a group of government agencies, some universities, research centers, green activists, permaculture uh, pioneers, designers and architects, over a kind of three-year period, have had an ongoing discussion called under what circumstances would our watershed uh, become healthier as a result of what we do? So it's not that everybody has to agree at all about what the strategy for the watershed of the Aqualon project is, but Aqualon is like a, a kind of uh, an aula, a kind of shared space physically and also in these maps and online, in which people can, in a feeling of safety, say, well, look, I run a kind of bus company. Are you going to tell me I can't run my buses anymore because it's bad for the rivers? Or I run a restaurant. Where am I supposed to get my water from if you're going to kind of make it difficult for me to kind of get water? And they said, we, don't, we are not here to tell you what you can't do. We are here to say, do you agree that the health of our watershed is a desirable future? Yeah, of course. Okay. That's all anybody is required only to agree that the health of the watershed is their shared responsibility and their shared priority. After that, you get a huge list of difficult choices and decisions to make. But the point is that the creation of this new kind of arena takes the pressure off people that they have to be, you know, change light bulbs or do greenwashing business. All that is kind of becomes meaningless because everything is yes or no, does my proposed action improve the health of the watershed. So if you look at the Aqualon uh, website, if, uh, you can see that there's like the many, many different strands of activity. When did I start? I've totally forgotten when I started. I want to... So I need to stop at 10 past? Okay. Um, beer. So 
There you had a watershed. What normally happens in this situation is people say, oh, it's all very well to do this in the desert or in some watershed in Germany with no kind of cities. What do we, most of the population of the world lives in cities. What are we supposed to do about reconnecting with nature or with natural systems? Which is why I bring in the subject of beer, because uh, one of my sort of uh, Shangri-Las of my travels in the last period has been the Brooklyn Brewery in New York, in Brooklyn. And I was pretty amazed and not terribly pleased to see that it's on sale here in Stockholm. Anyway, but this is a classic, it's a small-scale producer of natural food, water, hops, yeast, um, producers from the soil to the glass, so to speak, from the soil to the field to the firkin. Well, the reason I'm showing you the Brooklyn Brewery is that a, an activity which is um, creating beer, which is not an unusual concept, has become a social and economic activity by acting also as a hub, as a meeting place, not just for the brewers, but also for all the different people involved in any kind of food flow, whether it's bread or beer or whatever. So the people running the brewery are kind of curators and social organizers of a whole variety of meetings, absolutely not so different to what would happen in a university, except that the diversity of participation is much greater than you would often find in a kind of subject area. The point in this case, of course, is that if it's beer, lots of people from very different backgrounds are motivated to meet. These two women are kind of, they've had science backgrounds, but are now intermediaries in the kind of the distribution of the different hop varieties and helping the growers in different places optimize the choice of seeds and so on. And the main thing is that they're exploring a way of using lots of small physical spaces, small groups of people networked together to create beer not by having large industrial fields full of hops, but lots of small places, in ways which are simultaneously very old-fashioned, but very new-fashioned in the sense that they use the internet and technology to help people organize the production of hops on a lots and lots of small uh, spaces. And then what's so interesting is they start to connect with the, the food webs, the food networks of people in a hundred different ways trying to get back to the slow food movement, natural organic food, school kitchens, etc., etc. So the food market, so this is the new Amsterdam market in New York, which has been there for 200 years, has become, again, a kind of knowledge center training ground in which you go there to buy food. You can see somebody doing a presentation about sour bread. You can learn how to sharpen a knife. You can go and meet people who are experts on fermentation. You can spend days there, and the market, which used to have a manager whose only job was to say, you can have the third table on the left, has now become more like a teacher or a, a kind of organizer of learning, because all these people coming together from different places, you need to organize their meetings to help them spend a day and get a whole pile of, as well as leaving with food or selling food, learning and making new connections within their network. Likewise, clothing. All over the place, you know, as many of you, I'm sure, have been associated with campaigns to stop the wasteful use of short-life clothing. What has transformed that kind of picture in the, in the last period is saying, why can't we be a bit more proactive in growing um, plants for textiles in a regional basis? And so you have people who you must know who do natural dyes in these gorgeous ways of very tiny, tiny experiments on making 
dies naturally, meeting up with all the other people who do these individual experiments. So that's a kind of, it's, again, it's a bit washed out, but on the left is the field with either plants or sheep. Then you spin, then you die, then you, etc., etc. So there's dozens, hundreds, thousands of individuals or small groups might be doing individual activities, but the notion of a fiber shed or a fiber um, process is that you coordinate in a kind of growing but not too heavy way how they all do these things together they help each other become more effective make livelihoods out of it and so on so as for beer as for fibers you start to see a kind of completely new kind of economy emerge in which people producing on a small scale connect to each other treat the natural systems with respect but also get a benefit from it and then as more and more of this happens you get a bigger uh, aggregate operation than you would have been dreamed possible before so there this is from North Carolina where you see uh, a kind of beginning to plan on a bioregional basis how all these actors the, the makers and the growers and the dyers of things could collaborate together to meet more and more needs of that region in that region but also how to become more kind of effective and sophisticated in what they're doing. I need to speed up. Health is another one, but I actually want to... You, you don't want, I have a whole story about the body as being a, a living system and that the future of medicine will be about changing the way we think about health, but since I've only got five minutes left, I will, you'll have to take my word for it. I just explain, because you remember those graphs at the beginning. This is one of my favorite another horror story chart. This is a picture of the American biomedical ecosystem, which all those blobs and lines are interest groups, industries, experts, uh, practitioners, everybody from lobbyists to drug companies to the manufacturer of hospital clothes, whatever. The main thing that is so shocking about this uh, picture is that the patients, sick people, are in that little blobs there. Those are patients. Everybody else is living off the system. So, I just give you that as an example of why things, well they can go on, but does that look like a sensible or a long-term way to think about our health? Possibly not. Anyway, I've got a whole story about that uh, coming to an unhappy ending. But I want to finish with, uh, so we can have a discussion, about the, the connection between this emerging, fragmented, not very clear new economy in which we do things connected more directly and therefore responsibly to the living systems upon which we depend. What in that new landscape could the sensible task of a university be? And uh, so that's what I'm going to talk about now. So I have, I used to work, I worked in universities, I once had a job as a so-called director of research for the Royal College of Art in London, which is a very kind of famous and uh, self-satisfied institution which is filled with experts on every conceivable kind of art and design and I, I was called director of research which I interpreted to mean tell all these people what they should be doing or you know, sort of by way of research and in particular encouraging the multidisciplinary and horizontal connections that we all know are so important so I spent three and a half years giving presentations and writing strategy papers and making PowerPoint presentations about all these questions all of which were completely ignored by every single student and professor in the school until the last three months of my tenure when I found an external sponsor who had 8,000 euros to spend, at which point 
everybody suddenly said, now you mention it, I really think multidisciplinary work is just tremendously important. You're really right, John. I, just I finally understand what you were getting at in that 17 papers that you sent me. Anyway, so follow the money is lesson one. Uh, but lesson two is that I don't have any intention of telling you at all how to do your jobs in the future or in the past, because I know and I hope you will just totally ignore me. What I want to do slightly differently is to say the questions that I think facing you, as I said at the beginning, are faced in a rather similar way if you're in the medical profession, the design community, the environmental movement, the policy makers of the world. Everybody is in the same situation called we know that things are not as we would like them to be, but for some mysterious reason we're not able to change the way that uh, the situation is developing. So just as a placeholder, supposing that a university's job is to create knowledge for society. Just, it doesn't matter if you agree with that. That's, everybody has some kind of mission. Doctors, we are here to make people healthy. The Stockholm Environmental Institute, of which the, the people who I was meeting yesterday, their job very explicitly is called connecting science to policy. And I, they, you know, they're all smart people and they've spent well, quite a long time working out this one sentence which explains what all these very clever people do. And I finally understood, because I was a tiny bit mystified about what all these kind of climate scientists expected to be done with their papers and their, their theses. And the answer is, inform policymakers about the uh, imperative necessity to do something about climate change and all the reasons that climate change is happening. Except that, when this information duly arrives at policymakers, there's not actually a great deal that pol policymakers can do. Policymakers is a very bad name for what they do because people might think that they are making policy or directing the priorities of society or uh, steering the citizens to, to act in a responsible way. But as we know, policymakers, you know, governments, leaders, they actually don't have a great deal of power to tell society, the economy or anything else what to do. They might want to, but their actual effect is terribly constrained. So there you see the first gap. You have a global body of knowledge about what is causing climate change. The policymakers are made aware of that and lo and behold, 40 years later, we're in really bad shape because that is not enough to change the reality of the way that the world works. You do not create a transformation of the, cult, the economy or of the culture by writing PhD papers or by being a policymaker. In the same way, if you're in the innovation business, uh, you connect science to business. Okay, that's not too bad. Um, or maybe if you're in marketing, you connect uh, um, the offers of the technology or the offers of some inventor uh, to consumers. And in the design world, we may have talked over the last years about connecting technical possibilities to users in such a way that uh, something which has potential becomes really possible and can enter the market. All of these things are partly true and they are indeed bridges and connections that gigantic amounts of thought and attention have been given to over the decades until now. The only small missing part is that there is nobody at all in all of those kind of bridge making or connecting activities uh, responsible for connecting society to the conditions of nature. Not in a sense of like, writing about it, but actually connecting us back to where we started in such a way that we actually remember that with no living systems to support her, there'll be no living us. And that, I think, is why I said at the beginning this metabolic rift is what the fundamental 
structural problem that we're all in all our different disciplines and professions and cultures grappling with in different ways is that we have forgotten that we are part of the living systems rather than outside it and I'm afraid it's uh, that universities are as much a part of this as anybody else in terms of the tendency to divide knowledge into more specialized bits or to represent nature with abstract forms of knowledge like science or language but every, we all do it in different ways. I'm a writer, so I represent things with words. You know, or somebody might, an architect might represent a city with pictures, or a designer might represent something with a model. But none of these things are lived experiences about the necessity to look after living systems in the same way that we look after our other human interests. So that's, to me, the fundamental question. I think that there's one or two practical steps that could begin to change the kind of assumptions that shape how we act, whether as a university teacher or student or as a businessman or anybody else. As I said, supposing that we stop thinking about the university of town X or region Y explained in an administrative way, maybe we actually should associate ourselves with a bioregion. So we are the university of the bioregion X with this set, this rivers, this topography, these things. I'm just giving you that as a kind of provocation. Because once, if one could imagine having the bioregion as the identity and the kind of the basic value of any organization, then you can then, as I said earlier, host all these discussions with people who otherwise don't necessarily agree with each other. You can go and find databases filled with bioregions that have been compiled by neglected and sad scientists over the last 30 years, very rich material. Supposing that we said, okay, how do you govern a bioregion? for the lawyers amongst you or the, or the kind of the, the jurisprudence experts, earth system governance, how the hell do we do that? Well, actually it has been done before. So I had a conversation with the earth, earth systems governance persons and he said, well, the best example he knew was the, the government of the Venice Lagoon, which was a, very much a bioregional government. Not terribly democratic, it has to be said, but you know, no, nobody's perfect. But at least they did have a kind of government for the biological region rather than just for the administrative one. The whole subject of how you organize complicated systems in which lots of different actors are taking part. This is a food system in Denmark in which these are kind of everybody from kitchens to growers. I don't know what the answer is, but the question is, unless all those people are asking questions in a shared space and at a shared time, if they solve things individually, things won't get better. They might, by accident, get better. Somebody has to find a way for all these different groups of people to explore what's happening. And uh, the most important thing to be aware of is that it's not like a blank slate. This is a, just from Northeast England, a picture of all the organizations who might have a possible interest in the care of older people in one city. I think there's 64 different organizations. It is literally impossible. Nobody at all at the moment has the job of helping all those different organizations coordinate their work, have priorities, quality controls, improve their skills. Nobody. They do their own thing, which is not totally a disaster, but it just means that it's not necessarily a sort of a healthy and resilient society in which there is no sort of progress on that. So anyway, I'm coming to an end. It's to do with somebody has to carry out the task of gently bringing together all the different people associated with the health of your bioregion 
in its many, many different, and from the kind of smallest tree to the biggest watershed, asking open questions about who is going to look after it, what, how do we look after it, how are we going to get work, who's going to be fed, all that stuff. It, the answers are not there They'd have, because the questions haven't been posed yet. And I think that universities are as eligible as anybody else as to be one of these kind of shared public spaces in which people feel safe and respected and kind of appropriate to come and ask and have those conversations. And here is a, just an example of some university students doing exactly that. And this is where designers, I think, for those of you who aren't familiar with, designers are not just about making, well, they, some of them make the stuff that is filling up the world that we don't need. A lot of designers are very, very good at helping shape these meetings and comings together. So here is a group of multidisciplinary designers working with the citizens of Venice on how you kind of think about places, businesses, fish, mussels, cruise liners, blah, 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 in such a way that it's not a kind of me talking or somebody making a report, but you have a three-dimensional model of a city, a lagoon, ideas, things, people. Once you make things physical and tangible and you can actually kind of get into it and be part of it, you start to kind of be in the same right way of thinking that we need to look after our natural systems. So, that I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I did promise them sorry, a couple of minutes over. So, for me, healing the metabolic rift is not about a heroic um, exercise of will and moral, moral kind of virtue. It's about getting out of our kind of prisons of our silos and going and looking to see who out there in our bioregion is doing something that we regard as positive and having potential. It means connecting people together who are at the moment, as we know, nobody talks to you. I, I can promise you in your own university you don't know what the person two doors down is doing because it happened to me two or three times this week that I would say, what happens, who is that person? They say, no idea. Uh, that, even in your own institution, but do not, uh, the institution is a prison unless it is porous to these other questions and other communities. Uh, but also what is really important is that when we're all kind of frenzied and completely distracted by too much information and too many suggestions and too many conflictions, do not forget the origins of the university is the place or the process or the concept of reflecting and being helped to think clearly about subjects as well as knowing lots of knowledge about it. So, I hope that's good for your to-do list. Just by way of a, an ending point, I'll be back in August. I'm meeting lots of designers in uh, the Future Perfect Festival where we're going to explore this exact point. How can design skills help people think about natural systems in UA? So, keep an eye on that website if you'd like to know more information. Thank you.